Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Did you know that Canada's political parties are exempt from privacy laws? Well, they are. It's about time to change that, isn't it? Charles Burton, Senior Fellow with the Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, will join us to discuss an op-ed piece from the Globe and Mail that he wrote uh, about China's hunger for Canadian resources. And Travelers Canada has announced its latest results on distracted driving, and uh, some of the data is very concerning. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We've talked about privacy concerns and, and you know, Facebook and other social service agencies and social platform agencies that are taking information and perhaps selling it to other people. And, and we're outraged by that. And the federal government is stepping up and they say we're going to put guardrails in place. Now comes the revelation that apparently uh, federal political parties have that same access and there's really nobody policing what they're doing. Uh, virtually no rules and a zero oversight into how Canada's federal political parties actually collect, store and exploit personal information. Uh, the uh, the report comes out from uh, Global News and uh, Alex Boudley, who is the national poli- pol- politics reporter for Global News, uh, is the author of the piece that's on their webpage uh, right now. And I wanted to get Alex in here to explain exactly what's happening or maybe more appropriately what's not happening when it comes to privacy. Uh, Alex, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for the time today. Yeah, great to be here. We should clarify, by the way, we're not talking about the federal government here. I mean, there are rules and regulations to which they must adhere, but we're talking about the political parties. And uh, it's, uh, as you pointed out in the piece, it's kind of a Wild West show here, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So there, uh, there's what I would describe as like a bare minimum requirement for political parties to have uh, privacy policies on their websites, just like any private company does, right? Like you mm-hmm. mentioned Facebook or any social media company, they all have privacy policies, whether or not you... Um, you know, believe them or read them uh, is yeah. up to you. Um, but so political parties have recently been obligated to put privacy policies um, in terms of what data they collect and how they use it. But there's no oversight whatsoever. So basically, we're left to take uh, political parties at their word. Um, I don't know about your listeners, but uh, certainly I don't take political parties at their word on basically anything. Um, so, you know, Canadians really have no visibility, no uh, protection when it comes to all the information that political parties, you know, either collect themselves, you know, think if you signed up for, you know, a fundraiser, you know, if you donate to a party, um, then the party would have your name, your email address, uh, you know, probably your, well, definitely your, uh, you know, physical location, your home address, um, and that information. But, you know, we don't know if political parties are buying, you know, information, you know, from third parties, um, from data brokers, that sort of thing. We don't know how political parties combine the data that people freely give them with, you know, other data purchased on the market or, you know, combined through other sources. There's basically, it's basically a black box. And all we have is the party's word that, you know, they take their privacy seriously. Now, even if you trust whatever political party you give your information to, um, you have no visibility on how they use that information. You also have no visibility on how they protect that information. So, um, you know, we hear, you know, increasingly in the news uh, about, you know, large scale hacks of, you know, private companies, you know, people, you know, receive letters to let them know that they've been, you know, their information may have been compromised. Um, you know, they should, you know, take uh, certain steps to make sure that their credit's protected, that their information is protected. If a political party was hacked and all the information they held was, uh, you know, taken um, then there's no obligation for political parties to actually notify people who 
may have been affected by this. So, you know, not to say that that's happened, although there have been some reported cases, um, just to say that we really have no oversight, no insight into this entire operation, which is becoming increasingly important um, in modern politics. You know, parties are spending a lot of money on data analytics. You know, they're micro-targeting their messages to, you know, people in specific communities. And we basically just have no oversight whatsoever into, um, you know, whether or not what they're doing is above board. Let me ask you just to that point about the uh, the possible of, of, of these things being hacked. You, they may just say, yeah, we're doing everything we can to protect our data, but gee, we, just, we got hacked last week and all that stuff's out there. Sorry, Alex. Uh, yeah. If there are no rules or guardrails, I mean, are, are they even required to report that they've been hacked? No, they're not required. So, to so it could it could well have already happened and we wouldn't know it. And you don't know who did it and you don't know where that information is going. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, not to give anybody any suggestions, but, you know, if I was a malicious actor and I was looking to collect data on Canadians and to, you know, have better visibility about, you know, what parts of the country, you know, support, you know, which party, um, that would seem a prime target. And we just don't know. We don't know how much parties spend on cybersecurity. Um, we don't know, you know, the, you know, the success rate in terms of repelling attacks. Uh, we don't know how many attacks, you know, parties have suffered. Um, there was a recent uh, story reported by CDC that the Green Party had a database of, you know, thousands of Canadian voters, you know, where they live, who they are. Um, and that database was unsecured, just sitting there on the Internet. So it's not even like you would have to hack it. You just have to stumble across it. Um, and I think that that story sort of, you know, reinforces the danger of, you know, just taking, you know, parties at their word that they're safeguarding this properly, they're spending the appropriate amount of money because cybersecurity is very expensive. You know, we just we just take them at their word. Um, and I don't think that once, you know, Canadians realize that, that people will be very happy about that. I mean, we live in an age where information is king. I mean, we all know that. I mean, that's, you know, Facebook gathers information, they all do, and, and they sell that information. So, you know, if you want to sell boots, you know, you don't want to just throw an ad out there. You want to target a specific group, demographic, whatever it may be. And and politicians and pol- political parties do the same thing, don't they? I mean, they want to target their message to the places where, and to the people where it actually is going to have the most impact. Yeah, absolutely. And for a long time, you know, the Conservative Party of Canada was seen as like the the leaders in this sort of campaigning um, all through the Harper years. Um, they spent a lot of money and a lot of time um, breaking down the data and, and using it to tailor not only their election strategy, but also their policies. Um, we've seen that sort of on steroids in the Liberal government era. You know, the, Katie Telford, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, told Liberal Faithful in 2016, just after their historic election win, you know, that the, their data operations was a huge part of how they jumped from third place to a majority government um, for four years. So, you know, this is not insignificant. It's not, you know, sort of like something that's tagged on to the election strategy. This is a central part of modern politics. And we really have very, very little visibility, almost no visibility um, into, you know, what parties are doing, where they're getting their information and how they're using that information. Well, what's even more troubling, according to your reporting uh, in the Globe story here, a global story, uh, is not only is this the situation, which is troubling enough, uh, but in British Columbia, where they're trying to bring them back down to to at least use some of the parameters that they're using in that province uh, vis-a-vis protection of information, they're fighting that in court now. All the uh, they're all there, aren't they? The representatives of those political parties fighting that. 
Yeah, the Liberals, Conservatives, and NDP are opposing um, an order from the BC Privacy Commissioner that basically said, look, you know, political parties in our province are subject to privacy laws. They have these obligations. Insofar as you're operating in British Columbia, that British Columbia privacy law applies to you. Um, and so, you know, the parties balked at this. Um, you could imagine that, you know, all sort of major parties have a stake in not, you know, being forced to submit to, you know, privacy protections and, and rules. Um, so it's a rare cross-partisan sort of agreement that um, they want to oppose this. But sort of a, a, a sort of wrinkle in this story is that uh, in the federal government's most recent budget, there was just a small mention, like right at the back, that I was shocked when I read that they um, intended to bring in federal privacy rules for political parties. And so I went up, you know, in the budget lockup, there's a bunch of officials there that we can ask, so what's going on here? And the official said, well, you know, basically the parties are in court in British Columbia right now, and so the federal government wants to bring in rules that apply across the country. So that kind of makes sense, right? If you're a federal political party, Mm -hmm. you don't want to be complying with 13 different jurisdictions and their different rules and that sort of thing. That's very messy. So a federal law would supersede that and put in sort of a level playing field across the country. The problem that um, privacy advocates are worried about right now is it might be, you know, a Band-Aid sort of solution uh, or, you know, insufficient protection, right? So the federal government might say, yeah, you know, the privacy commissioner can audit our privacy statements and make sure that we're, you know, you know the statements are up to snuff, uh, but that doesn't actually give people more um, comfort or more insight into how their data is being actually used and exploited. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see if and when the Liberals actually, you know, follow through on this, what protections they're willing to put in place. And I should note, like, every private company that operates in Canada, you know, is subject to Canadian privacy law. Um, Every government department, whether it be provincial, municipal, provincial, or federal, are subject to privacy laws. It's only the federal political parties that have this real interesting carve-out where they're not subject to the same sort of scrutiny that a Facebook would be. And I, I can understand the skepticism about, you know, this proposal that, yeah, we're going to handle this and we'll, we'll draft some legislation because uh, governments, whether they're liberal, conservative at the federal level, seem to mold these things uh, to their own pleasure. I mean, there, there are certain laws about accountability, et cetera, for how they spend their office budgets and things like that, but they're very guarded as to what information they actually release. They, they love to self-police. Uh, so you got to wonder just how effective this legislation is going to be. And that's, as you mentioned in the piece, even if it isn't going to be forthcoming. Yeah, and I think, you know, just to that point, you know, it's interesting that, you know, the Conservatives and Liberals don't agree on much. (laughs) I think any casual observer of federal politics would agree to that. Um, But they seem to agree on this. And I think the reason that they probably agree on this is they don't want either their competitors knowing exactly how they're using information and how that, you know, sort of helps their election strategy. They also don't want fetters. Um, If you have a very powerful tool... Uh, that might be taken away from you, and it means the difference between winning an election and not winning an election, um, then you're probably going to be pretty reluctant to give it up. Uh, and with an election imminent at any time in a minority government, uh, I, I'm not thinking they're rushing right now to try to get this thing in front on the, on the floor of the Commons anytime soon either. Uh, as always, great reporting on this, Alex. Thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Really appreciate it. Anytime. Take care. Take care. Alex Boudelier, National Politics Reporter for Global News, uh, with a very concerning piece. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about, uh, well, Chinese interference. We've certainly talked about foreign interference politically uh, in this country and, frankly, academically as well, since they seem to have uh, created a footprint for themselves at many universities here in this country. But also uh, from the manufacturing standpoint and the economic standpoint, uh, the Chinese government, through some of their uh, agencies, shall we say, have uh, tried to do that, especially when it comes to uh, resources and minerals. And that's, of course, uh, a big story these days because of the move towards EVs and the mining that uh, is going to be happening in northern Ontario and other places, too. And uh, our next guest put this is this in perspective for us, too. Charles Burton is a senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald laurier Institute. Uh, Charles, a pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for the time today. Well, good morning, Bill. The, the latest topic here, it seems to center around the mining industry and uh, Canada's uh, largest diverse company called Tech Resources, uh, which has, a, well, a partnership, shall we say, a financial partnership uh, with a Chinese company, which is really, as we know, most Chinese companies are really just agents of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, talk to us about that relationship and, 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 and where it is right now as we, I guess this government, especially the federal government, uh, is reinvesting in a big way in, in mining in this country and, and uh, want to make sure that they can they still control it, I suppose, to a certain extent, don't they? Well, I think certainly we want to have companies that exploit Canadian natural resources in Canadian hands. Uh, tech, the mining company Tech, which you know does do tr- critical minerals and coal and a lot of things, uh, is a very large company here in Canada, and there is investment in tech by the Chinese uh, China Investment Corporation, which is their sovereign wealth fund. In other words, all of the foreign currency that China accumulates due to its massive trade surpluses with Canada, the West, and Japan, and everywhere else uh, has to go somewhere. So they invested in companies that facilitate the um, transfer of natural resources back to China to make more stuff, to sell more stuff and accumulate more sovereign wealth. And, you know, it's sort of an interesting circle there. But uh, in this case, tech has been subject to a hostile takeover by a Swiss firm called Glencore. And I think that tech expected, because the Chinese uh, Investment Corporation has a very significant uh, investment in tech, in fact, it really would be um, in terms of the shareholder um, share, the definitive factor in whether this Canadian company tech could go over to becoming a Swiss company, Glencore, that I think the, the tech expected that China would support the company that they invested in. Mm-hmm. And the, the CEO of tech, Jonathan Price, you know, quoted in uh, the Globe and Mail said that his understanding of tech's relationship with the China Investment Corporation is very open and collaborative. Well, you know, as we know from previous interactions you and I've had over the radio and many others, uh, China is, uh, you know, definitely not open and definitely not collaborative. So the real issue is why would a Canadian firm get themselves in a situation where they are working with the Chinese state, thinking it's open and collaborative when it's pretty clear that quite the opposite is true and tech may end up going into foreign hands as a result. 
to, to that point, though, uh, when that partnership was struck, when when the Chinese uh, agency, when uh, the China Investment Corporation started to show interest and actually buy into this company, uh, I, was the assumption at that point, though, Charles, that, oh, that's great, that's foreign investment, that's what we're looking for here. Uh, in other words, I don't think we knew what we do now know about the Chinese relationship between the Communist Party and some of these firms. Uh, I, did we just simply look at this as that that's just two companies doing business without government interference? Absolutely. I mean, this was 2009 that, okay, yeah. that tech uh, bought up 17.3%. I'm sorry, that the Chinese uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund, the Chinese Investment Corporation, bought up 17.3%. And tech was uh, a failing mining company at the time. Uh, it's doing better now. And I guess that we saw this as, oh, yes, this is how uh, this is important in terms of a balanced relationship with China and that we you know, set aside our differences and on uh, human rights and and so on, and and uh, welcome Chinese investment and and try and gain a greater share of the Chinese market. Well, you know, as you say, since then things have really changed, and we have a much greater insight into the nature of the Chinese regime. And you know, they the thing about it is that they're not interested in simply a good investment for their sovereign wealth fund. But they're interested in a larger geostrategic interests, which is uh, China's desire to become the dominant power on the planet and displace the United States as the global superpower. And the Belt and Road Economic Initiative and these investments are not just about, like, how can we diversify our sovereign wealth fund and make some money? But they're really about how can we get critical minerals from Canada to China to gain a stranglehold on that and use that for our purposes, you know. So I think there is a, a much higher awareness and we have put in a critical mineral strategy that will um, keep the critical minerals in Canada's hands and allow us to develop high-tech products here. And we did uh, expel three Chinese companies that were investing in lithium on uh, as Minister Champagne said to Parliament last night because he had intelligence information that, that they were up to things that were against uh, Canadian national interests. So, you know, the awareness is there. Um, I think we have to just say goodbye to Chinese state investment because it's just not a good idea for Canada to get into bed with an autocratic regime that is hostile to our interests. But as you point out, I mean, it, it's it's almost the polar opposite of the mindset that we had back around 2008, 2009, wasn't it? Uh, we were looking there, and, and China was soon to be, we thought, going to be the number one economy in the world, the, the economic driver. You want to be friends with these people. We know there's a human rights problem there. There's lots of other problems, but that always seemed to be the, the mindset now. And, and now that but is getting bigger, and I, I can see that attitudes have changed in Ottawa, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, it was as recent as 2017 that, yeah. But uh, we were go going to do a free trade agreement with China. I mean, thank goodness we didn't do that. Or talking about like maybe we could uh, have an extradition treaty with China to, to make them feel happier about us uh, investing in their country. Uh, you know, after the Coverkin's favor kidnapping and the conditions that they suffered, uh, you know, the idea that we would like send people who committed crimes uh, in Canada back, uh, back to, to China is just completely off the table, you know. So things have changed. And, and aside from which, you know, it looks like we're heading into a military confrontation over Taiwan and the South China Sea. And if there is that, that kind of confrontation between China and the U.S., Canada, due to its commitment to NATO, will be involved. So, you know, do we want to be in a situation where we're 
uh, providing inputs into a regime that may use them against us if if the situation continues to deteriorate into a into a, a, a you know a kinetic war in addition to a, hy- a hybrid warfare. Charles, how important is it with the commitment from uh, well the federal government specifically, but you know other provincial governments, especially here in Ontario, uh, to move towards more extraction and 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 to ramp up that production uh, when it comes to things like EVs and batteries and things of that nature? How important is it to keep companies like tech and Canadian hands, or at least with Canadian within Canadian influence, anyway? Well, I think that I think certainly the government will probably. Um, rule against the Swiss takeover on the basis of it's not in the economic interests of Canada and impacts on our security if, in fact, you know, the Swiss are more amenable to to providing the the lithium to uh, to China for its own, you know, attempt to try and gain a stranglehold on that commodity. Uh, the thing about it is that, you know, we have a critical mineral strategy that the mining for these elements that are so important to our high-tech future is a very expensive and risky business. And so, you know, we don't really have the resources inside Canada to fully exploit what may be under the ground. In other words, you do a lot of speculation. I guess you start digging a hole in the ground and maybe it's there, maybe it's not there. So, you know, the 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 temptation to accept foreign investment in this is is very high. But I think what we really need to do is to have the government money going into it and the government assuming the risk and benefits of exploiting these uh, these minerals so that so that Canada can keep ahead in the high tech future and ensure that we don't become beholden to um, hostile regimes to to get the inputs that we need for doing things like, you know, those that new Volkswagen plant going up uh uh, that the government's put so much money into it won't do much good if they can't actually manufacture any b- batteries because they can't get the, the the minerals they need. With that in mind, how skeptical or how suspicious I guess should the government be about the, the the Swiss takeover if in fact that goes down that road? I think we should be suspicious. I mean, you know, the, the there aside from the fact that it's a foreign company that that is interested in maximizing profit and might be, um, you know, the the Chinese government might be giving some blandishments to the Swiss government to encourage them to allow this to happen and to benefit China if uh, China becomes instrumental in transferring tech over to Glencore because of its uh, voting power as a, as a major shareholder. But, um, you, you know, there are also other aspects. You know, Glencore is not as respectful of environmental um, provisions and the, the sort of uh, social element of business that that is becoming more and more significant that that businesses should not only maximize profits but ought to behave as responsible stakeholders in sustainable mining and and uh, and providing opportunities for indigenous peoples so you know tech is certainly on that road um glencore not so much uh would those regulations though and especially as you say from an environmental standpoint be Something would be prohibitive that the company that the Swiss company might actually lose interest here, or are they simply going to plow ahead with this hostile takeover? Oh, I think they'll plow ahead with it. I mean, the problem is that you know, unless you've got a corporate culture that's sympathetic to these things, it's very hard to to get um, companies to comply. Um, you, you know, and you see this in the Chinese investments in Africa. You know, so often they promise that they'll do a strip mine, but they'll they'll clean it up afterwards and. You know, they'll provide benefits for education of children and medical facilities is to sort of sweeten the deal. And then in the end, you find that 
once they've removed all the elements, they don't fulfill the other terms and you really have no recourse in that kind of situation. So, you know, what you need is good corporate citizens that you can trust. And I don't think the Chinese regime qualifies for anything that we can trust or as their, as the head of, uh, of tech said, uh, you know, um, collaborative and, 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 uh, and uh, um, cooperative or whatever he said, you know, just you just can't you just can't trust that they're at their word. And what's happened with tech is they thought the Chinese were their friends, and then when they needed them, they weren't anywhere to be seen. Well, yeah, it's the old adage, I guess. You know, the, the, I guess the cliche is you'd, you'd rather ask permission than to beg forgiveness. But they don't ask for forgiveness; they just pack, pack up and leave after they've uh, sucked the companies dry. How vigilant are we now, though, Charles? Uh, we know what's going on with tech now, the hostile takeover and the Chinese uh, interaction with that. Uh, the, uh, but are there other examples like this that we're, the government may not be aware of? Oh, I think so. I, I think in general, you know, we're looking into a modernization of the Foreign Investment Act. There's hearings going on in the industry committee of the House of Commons right now. The Minister Champagne spoke at it uh, last night. I, I'm giving some uh, evidence to that committee on Monday. I think we are trying to get more serious about tracking this stuff so that we can ensure that foreign investments in Canada are to the net benefit of Canada and will protect our security. But we really have to to have much stronger and more rigorous mechanisms with teeth like serious fines so that companies don't try and pull a fast one. And and I think some of the provisions are in the course of negotiating the takeover that the Canadian firm can't hand over a lot of intellectual property that might serve the interests of a foreign state than Canada will lose. So you know, I think, that, I mean, you know, we have to maintain the integrity of our free market system, but I think that there are ways to ensure that countries that don't believe in in you know equal and reciprocal relationships are not able to take advantage of our of our of our weaknesses and I, I, that that law you know the the foreign investment uh, modernization act has gone through second reading in parliament unanimously every single party conservatives liberals ndp and the greens all support it so you know i think there is consensus in canada that it's time to start doing something to set things right in this regard well, and it's important, I guess, too, that they've learned from past situations like this, too. And that legislation, Jeez. I think, is probably an example of that. Charles, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. Really appreciate the time today. Great to speak with you. Take care. Charles Burton, uh, of course, from the McDonald Laurier Institute. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, we're doing it. We know it's wrong. We know it's illegal. We know it's dangerous. Uh, but we are distracted drivers more and more. And we're admitting it, kind of a cavalier attitude that we seem to be taking to this. Uh, well, the good folks at uh, Travelers uh, Canada have done some research on this. And, uh, well, the numbers and the attitudes that uh, came out of the survey uh, are somewhat concerning here. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Paul Stillman. Paul is the Vice President of uh, Personal Insurance, Sales and Distribution and Marketing at uh, Travelers. Uh, Paul, pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for this. Uh, thanks for having us, uh, Bill. Okay, okay, you're not driving. That's good. All right. No, uh, no, I'm in my office. <laughs> Are you surprised by the numbers? And I, as I read through some of the the, the overview here of the report, uh, the fact that we know it's wrong, we know it's illegal, but many of us are still doing it, even though we know that it can have some dire consequences. Yeah, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Like we do know it's wrong, and and it's not getting better. You know, the, the survey shows that when compared to you know a few years ago, three in ten drivers feel that the roads are less safe today, and you know thirty percent of drivers that who were surveyed admitted to to actually getting in a in a collision 
while they were distracted. And on top of that, another 25% of drivers admitted they almost were in a collision due to distracted driving. So yeah, it's, it's not getting better. We need to, we need to collectively do something more about it. You know, one of the things that I always found, and you brought this up in the comment, there's some contrary attitudes here. Uh, if you drive a late model car, for instance, uh, and we know about, you know, the, the Bluetooth and you can have hands free. If in fact you, you have to make phone calls or receive phone calls, you can do that. Uh, but you can also get text, a, a printout of your text. Why in God's name would you give that technology to somebody in a car? I mean, you can't read and drive at the same time, can you? Yeah, you, no, you can't. Exactly. That's the point. Technology is the driver of the issue. There are other issues, but you know, whether it's phone calls, um, checking for directions, reading texts and emails, and, you know, a, a frightening portion of the respondents, 13%, actually admitted to actually composing emails and texts. Six in 10 are, are having a drink or, uh, or eating something. You know, there's, there's, there's stuff beyond the technology that is driving distraction. And and we just seem to take it as, as, you know, that this is what we need to do. This is our lifestyle. I don't know that I can go to a stoplight at any intersection in any town that I've traveled in where you don't see somebody looking down at their lap. At, at, they're in a red light, but they just figured, what's the first of all, why is the phone in their hand in the car? It shouldn't be. Uh, but But we all just seem to think, well, this is what we need to do. Uh, I'm old enough to remember the days when I used to be able to drive from Hamilton to Toronto. There's no communication at all. I mean, if I had to call my employer, I had to pull off to a gas station someplace and try to find a payphone. But we just need to have instant communication with people these days, don't we? Yeah, you know what? And we, we need to collectively do better and hold each other accountable. Like there, there, there are things that we can take advantage of to help curb this issue. One, let, let's use technology to help solve the technology. You know, turning phones to do not disturb or driver focus, that's one way. While you're a passenger in a car, speak up. We need to call out our friends, our colleagues, our family, because nine out of 10 people said that they would stop touching that phone or being distracted if they were called out by somebody in the car. Employers can help. Only 17% of workplaces have distracted driving policies or driving policies, but when they're in place, 90% of drivers actually abide by them. So more employers doing that, that will make the road safer. You know, and 80% or 83% of respondents to the survey said that they would be interested in, in a cost saving to their insurance if it meant that they were driving in a more safe manner, less distracted driving. So, you know, look into those cost savings with telematics products that many companies, including travelers, have. And last but not least, and you just said when you're at the stop sign or a stoplight and you see somebody doing it and then you see them take off and driving uh, dangerously and distracted, report it. Only one in 10 Canadians report dangerous, distracted driving. We need to, we need to do this for each other, for our families, for our friends, for our colleagues. We collectively need to make the road safer together. You know, a, a good friend of mine, Klaus Wagner, was a traffic control officer for Hamilton Police Services for years. He's retired now and enjoying his retirement, I hope. But some of the stories, though, Paul, he used to tell me, and and statistics, and I know you guys at Travelers know these numbers, but the, the distance you travel in a car, even if you're doing like 50 kilometers an hour, uh, in, in one or two seconds, I mean, you're going like the, almost the, the length of a football field. So don't yeah. tell me that you can, yeah, don't tell the, me you can the, do the both. Yeah, the three the three second rule, like every second counts. You know, three seconds you've traveled one hundred meters, uh, and and you know a lot can happen in a hundred meters you know, that you don't see on the road, or somebody is incurring into your lane, or a pedestrian, or a cyclist, or any number of things like that. But and that's the thing that I guess surprises an awful lot of us when you look at some of these numbers and the results of your survey. We know all those stats. 
yet we, we still do. see people that are doing it. And, and you know, with their or the other one that bothers me, too, is I, I, we've talked about it probably 10 times since you and I started the conversation, is the technology is there. Bluetooth technology is there. Most people just say, well, I'm not going to pay that kind of money. Would you rather pay the fine? Yeah, and and beyond the technology, you know, it's just you mentioned driving from from Hamilton Serrano, you know, that's a stressor that drives distraction. You know, almost eighty percent of drivers said that the behavior of other drivers causes them to be just distracted. They feel stressed. Over sixty percent of drivers feel stressed and distracted in in traffic. And then when you get into the, the parking lot at the grocery store or the mall, almost 50% of drivers find that they become distracted and stressed when they're looking for a parking spot. So there are simple things we can do beyond the technology. Leave a little earlier, you know, build build a buffer into, into your commute and park a little further away and don't worry about that extra 20, 30 meters that you have to walk. Take advantage of the exercise. Exactly. Uh, listen, thanks to you guys for doing the survey. And, and if the one of the stated purposes here was to try to get a conversation going about it, uh, mission accomplished, because we're going to talk about it more on the program. Thanks for spending some time with us, though, Paul. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. And thank you for helping us raise awareness. This is an important yeah. issue. And we're going to continue to do that. Thank, take care, Paul. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.